It's my pleasure to welcome you to the Clark Howard Show, where our mission is to serve you and empower you so you make better financial decisions in your life. We have a theme on today's podcast, employment. First, I'm going to talk about fake jobs and also fake job applicants. How to know if someone's trying to scam you either way. And later, do you know what your colleagues making doing the same job as you do? Well, you may soon find out is employers more and more either kicking and screaming or by choice are being more transparent about pay levels. So the job market is shifting into a lower gear. For the first time in a long time, the word layoff is entering our ears. We're seeing some of that. Nothing catastrophic or anything like that. Looks like it's in the cards. But this thing we've had for the last two years of a massive number of openings and an extreme shortage of people to fill those openings, that imbalance is exactly what the Federal Reserve is trying to break the back of, trying to reduce the heat in the economy. And so they're adding heat into our lives by raising interest rates. And the result is the job market is going to get more into equilibrium over time as things cool down. So I want to tell you a couple of things. In the employment market, there's been a lot of oddity in it. And it really all got started in the heart of the pandemic two years ago when people shifted to doing so much online that used to be in person. And job interviews now routinely are happening virtually with people either on some kind of Zoom or something like that, or just an online interview with questions going back and forth. Could be an audio interview, something uh, we used to call it a phone call. So A lot of weirdness is going on in the job market that requires caution, particularly on the part of employees or prospective employees, and also, oddly enough, with employers. So now that people are not physically present for their interviews so many times, employers are actually getting conned at smaller companies where they don't necessarily do some kind of uh, traditional background checking or anything like that, where someone will apply for a job they're not at all qualified for. They call it the bait and switch job interview. A friend or someone they pay will stand in for them doing the interview who has the skills required for that job and sounds fantastic. And they'll get a job offer and they go to work And they don't have any of the skills or training or background or experience that the job called for. And the employer completely gets conned. And then they have somebody who's basically a trainee instead of the skilled person they thought they were hiring. And it's because of this thing with people doing the remote interviewing. And it seems simple, seems easy, but face-to-face has a lot of value. There was a Business Insider story that was really interesting about all the employers who had had problems where they had the new hire come in and they didn't know how to do anything they were hired for. Then we've got the other issue that I dealt with recently with a question that someone had posted for me, and that was about applying for jobs 
seeming really promising. They were getting ready to uproot their lives and all that to move somewhere else in the country. And the job openings posted were not real. In fact, there was a study recently that found that 40% of employers are posting jobs that they don't really intend to hire for. Why would an employer give you false hope and waste your time, waste their time with a posting for a job that's a phantom? Why would they do that? Okay, so I've talked before about wired jobs, which is where an employer already knows who they're hiring for a job, but they go through the motions of interviewing people for whatever reasons. There was a scandal recently with Wells Fargo about this. And this is different. This is where an employer is trying to come up with potential good candidates for the future by posting a false listing that isn't really there for a job that's not really existing. I mean, that's bonkers, right? And so this requires, when you're looking for a job, to remember a key rule. People hire people. I think about people I'll hear from that are on message boards and on LinkedIn and on all these places every day looking for jobs, and nothing ever comes of any of them. It's because the networking you need to do is at such a base human level because people don't hire resumes. People hire people they kind of know or know of. So everything is about you doing direct contact with an employer, getting to know people, interviewing for information where you go through your phone and come up with a list of people. You know, I haven't talked with this person or that person in a long time. They may know something that would be helpful to me. So you work your network that you already have to find the possibilities that are out there. And you never call somebody you haven't talked to in forever and say, hey, by the way, you know if anybody's hiring right now? Uh Uh-uh. People hate being asked for that. That's like a favor, right? But people love being asked for advice. Love it. So you basically are talking to an old acquaintance, a friend you've kind of lost touch with, and say, hey, you know, what do you think about? You ask questions, and people love to be able to share their knowledge with you. And you work your network. Nobody joins organizations anymore, but organizations are a good way to meet people in a field that you're interested in, whatever trade association organizations, you go to things, you meet people, you network. That's how almost all good jobs are found. It's very, very rare that a job is found by you just responding to a listing and sending in a resume. I'm talking about career kind of jobs. If you want a good career ladder kind of job, it's all about who you know. I know that sounds like that couldn't really be the way it works now. Still works that way, I promise. Krista? This is from Malak in Florida. I'm a nurse. My local hospital is offering $80 an hour contracts for three months, but does not include paid days off or a 401k match. Their regular full-time job staff pays $35 to $40 an hour, but includes paid days off, 401k matching, and health benefits. 
do I take the full-time position or do I just do the higher hourly rate? All right. So one train leaves Cleveland. (laughs) It really is. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my answer to this, because this came up when the pay for visiting nurses was completely bonkers, crazy in 20 and part of 21. And I would take this question and I was getting questions. If you remember from nurses working in hospitals that had a visiting nurse working next to him who was making four or five times the effective hourly rate they were. That's over now for the most part. Those crazy pay rates from COVID aren't there anymore. But here's the way I would look at this. If you love working at that hospital or you think you would love being there for a long time and that is where you would like your path to be, I think you take the short-term hit on hourly pay and you become a regular full-time employee of that hospital. On the other hand, if you're feeling like a free agent and that place is just Mr. Right now and not Mr. Right, then I would take the 80 an hour. I'd take the more than double effectively hourly rate, not worry about the benefits and get the higher rate and know you're a free agent, and when another opportunity at another hospital it's paying too much per hour for contract labor, when you have the chance to go to that one, you go to that one. So it's all about where your head's at. If you see this as a hospital you could see being at for years to come, you like the atmosphere, you like the environment, you like the working conditions, then I think you take the full-time job. Can't, wouldn't you calculate also, because if you're a contractor, you still need to, then you have to pay extra Double taxes. social security and all that. But And then save for retirement. You want to calculate right. that. You got that. You got the health care. So how do you calculate the benefits? You figure the back of the envelope is benefits cost 30% of hourly rate. So let's say it's 40 an hour. So you would just back of the envelope, you would say those benefits are worth an additional $12 an hour. Just simplest math. So you're still doing better temporarily at the $80 an hour contract. But again, it's about what are you trying to accomplish? If you want stability in your life, you want a long-term relationship with this hospital, then go ahead and take a full-time position. If you're somebody who's like footloose and fancy free and you'll be here, maybe you go to another city where they're paying a lot of money, whatever, take the hourly rate. Richard in Florida says, I received electrical surge insurance solicitation letters from my electricity provider at least twice monthly. The insurance is $10.50 plus tax per month to install an anti-surge device on my electric meter. This will cover damage to appliances due to a light surge. I just wonder why I couldn't have an electrician install a surge protector on my house before the breaker panel for a one-time cost. Well, Richard, that's because you're right. (laughs) That is the smarter answer. So the utility companies push these insurance plans because they are insanely profitable for them. You know, it is true that if you had a huge electrical surge and it blows out a lot of stuff, I've had that once before, it's an expensive event. Fortunately, in my life, I've been a homeowner since 1978. One time in 44 years, one time have I had the oops where I had to replace stuff because they got hit by a surge. And then what I did is what you're talking about, Richard, 
every house I've had since I put in before the panel, I put in the surge protection stuff. I haven't had to worry about it. But if you think about what I would have paid over the years paying a monthly fee like this, it's not a good idea to pay that monthly fee. You're much better off paying to put in the actual real protection of your own surge protector that you own. And when you sell that home, it goes to the benefit of the buyer of your home. John in California says, I've been receiving mail at my residence with someone else's name. Should I be concerned? And I love your newsletters and shows. Well, thank you very much, John. And I want to tell you, it could mean nothing. It could be ugly. The worst type of identity theft is something known as synthetic identity theft. And it's something that has been able to fool the fraud systems that the banks and credit card companies have in place. And also the credit bureaus have been asleep at the switch on synthetic identity theft. So the way it works is somebody uses a mix of different people's social security numbers and other people's names and a mix of addresses. And so the credit bureaus systems fail to detect the synthetic identity theft that involves, again, one person's name, another person's social security number, another person's address. So they're doing this three-way mix to the point that they've created essentially a new identity. And I remember Barron's Magazine of all sources did a cover story years ago about synthetic identity theft because criminals were targeting ultra-wealthy Wall Street types because they had these massive credit lines and all this. And then the financial institutions ultimately were trying to get people arrested who were victims of this, not the actual perpetrators. It was a huge mess, and that's when I first became aware of this as a targeted crime. So, John, know that it could be just a clerical thing. It could be a synthetic identity theft. So what you've got to do, you need to monitor your credit regularly. I've talked about Credit Karma and Credit Sesame. Use them to do so for free. And then set up credit freeze, and everybody in your household needs to do these steps because you don't know who the target is in the house that's being used potentially for fodder for somebody applying for credit or creating an identity that uses your address and or your social security number, but somebody else's name. So it could be that, could be that mess. It could be just an oops that somebody's name has mistakenly been attached to your address it could be either factor. You just want to make sure that you take the precautions that you can take. Wouldn't it be simpler if life didn't have things like this? But the steps I'm asking you to take are free and quick to implement. So I want to tell you, I'm really glad, John, you enjoy our newsletters. We were really thoughtful about putting them together. We try to have up-to-the-minute information in our daily emails to help you with your wallet, to give you heads up, to give you money-saving advice, and ways for you to fatten that wallet moving forward. Oh, and if you want to subscribe, you go to clark.com slash newsletters. And straight ahead, another thing about pay, 
do you know what the person next to you is making? This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Caused a big fuss when the state of Colorado started requiring employers to publish people's pay rates. Now, California is following Colorado. And let me tell you, employers are so mad They can't stand it. They can't stand it because when employees know what each other make, it creates a problem for an employer who maybe has a favored person who they're giving more money to this person, even though they're doing the same job as the next person and all that, that when employees have that information, it can actually force employers to pay equally for equal work. And employers are human beings. They, they have favorites and they want to pay this person more than that person, even though that person may do better work than the person they want to give more money to. This is like visceral for employers. They want that information kept secret. I remember when I was very young and I went to work for IBM, I was collecting bad debts from IBM customers who hadn't paid their bills. And that's how I got through grad school. And thank you, IBM, for paying all my grad school tuition. But I remember at a new employee orientation, one of the things we were told was that if you ever discussed your salary with any other employee, you would be immediately fired. I was like, what? Because what's funny is before that, I had gotten through undergraduate school as a federal employee. I had worked as a civilian employee for the Air Force, and then I'd worked for HUD. And the feds have this system called, I don't know if it still works exactly this way, but I was a GS-4. If you're a federal worker, you know what that means. And uh, then the job I had at HUD, I was GS-5. And everybody knew what everybody made. And he, he knew he, uh, they were a GS-11, they were a GS-6, they, whatever. And that was your pay level. Almost like in the military where whatever rank somebody is, you know exactly what their pay is. So when I got to IBM and they told me I was going to get fired if I talked to somebody about pay, I was like, what? Because I didn't have that much work experience at 20 to know that that was the way it was going to be. And I learned very young that's how employers play this game. But there's going to be more and more push and pull in the marketplace for that information to be available. And obviously, then not to be a firing offense if somebody knows what you make. 
I believe that the employer fear that transparency about wages would lead to higher pay is not necessarily true. I think that what would happen is that there would be more equal pay for similar jobs. And employers only have so much money that they can afford to pay out and still run a profitable business, still invest in the business and all the rest. And so I think that it ignores classic economics to believe that if you had paid transparency, that somehow magically everybody would suddenly make more money. All it would mean is that thing with Jim making more than Jane or Mary making more than Sue or making more than Bill for doing the same job, that would not happen anymore if we knew what each other were making. Krista? Cindy in Pennsylvania says, I received an email from my auto insurance company asking me to choose between limited or full tort coverage. I could save approximately $200 annually with limited, but is it worth that savings to potentially not receive needed benefits in the event of a serious car accident? I have a 20-year-old on my insurance as well. I have been with my insurer and lived in Pennsylvania for many years and do not recall ever being asked this previously. So I don't know the specifics of why your insurer is now offering you this option. But the thing is, first of all, you gave a key piece of information, having a 20-year-old accident rates are really high, 16 to 19 and stay higher up through age 24. And so uh, the risks of an accident are higher with a younger driver, but that's not how you decide this. If you're in a position, Cindy, where you have a meaningful amount of assets, you own stuff like uh, you have a lot of equity in your home, maybe you own your home free and clear, maybe you've got money in investments, money in savings, That's where you really have to protect yourself with adequate liability coverage. And that's where it would be really useful for you to pay the 200 extra to have much more liability coverage. If, on the other hand, you're a renter, you're wheezing financially, you're 401k, you need a magnifying glass to see the balance. I mean, if your finances are very much month to month just trying to get by, You don't need to worry about the liability coverage. Liability coverage is always a success tax, that the more you have, the more you are at risk of losing, and that's when having additional liability shield becomes so very important. So even if you have an umbrella policy already? Well, you're not going to be, normally you're not going to be able to have an umbrella unless you hit certain triggers. So if she has an umbrella from her auto insurer or her homeowner's insurer, they're going to require for the umbrella to be effective coming in. They're going to have had to have met the liability limits required for various lines of coverage. And sometimes people have their auto and homeowners with different companies. In fact, a lot of times people have homeowner and auto with different companies and they'll think they're covered with their umbrella, let's say they bought the umbrella from the homeowner's insurance company, Mm -hmm. but they might require that in order for it to be effective on your auto insurance, you have to have this much liability coverage. If you don't have that much, the umbrella isn't actually going to open up when the rain starts. Wow. 
Okay, Ryan in Georgia says, after listening to your show for the last two years, my wife and I finally got the Costco credit card. We have strategically used it and will have a pretty sizable reward of around $600. As I understand, the rewards will go away if you do not use them. What should we use our rewards on? Turn them into cash. Turn them into cash. Turn them into cash. Okay, so Costco, you've got two kinds of rewards. If you're an executive member, you get uh, 2% cash back pretty much on everything you buy up to $1,000, which means if you got a thousand back, you spent a huge amount of money at Costco over the year um, with the credit card, and that money has to be spent in the store. With the credit card, you have the option of turning it into cash when you get your rewards. It's not a check, but you can turn it into cash. Do that. You don't want to use it for spending in the store because then. If you're buying stuff, you want to use the card so you're already accruing more cash for the following year. So you use the card at the store to buy gas, whatever. Um, The Costco credit card, the Sam's Club credit card, are both free of any annual fee. And if you are an active shopper at Sam's or Costco, in addition to the membership, get the cards. The Sam's Club card gives you 5% cash back on gasoline. Plus, member, you get enhanced rewards on the card where shopping in the store and using the card, you get a combined total of 5% back. Costco, you use the card, you get 2% in the store. You get 4% on gasoline, 3% at restaurants, 3% on travel, 1% everywhere else. Where do you never use a Costco card everywhere else? Because the 1% you don't want, you want to use it where you get the 2, the 3, and the 4% back. This is from also Orion, but this Ryan's in Nebraska. Are all 403Bs created equal? I'm in my hospital employer's 403B plan with a moderate employee match. You Employer match, I assume. You always speak poorly of 403Bs. However, in ours, our employer has numerous investment options we can choose from, many of which are low-cost Vanguard funds. I've confirmed the expense ratio of 0.04 with a once-a-year $50 fee. That seems very low. What are your thoughts? Okay, so... This is where the trick is with 403Bs, Ryan. You may have multiple investment options. You may have Vanguard options at a very, very low rate. Four one-hundredths of 1% is fantastic. That's a great, great low expense ratio. You got the $50 annual fee. But you may also have charges from the 403B sponsor that could be extremely high with very large embedded commissions in them. I want you to know about a website called 403bwise.com. It's 403bwise.com. Go check there. You can even uh, send them a question about this hospital plan, and they will guide you how to figure out what other hidden fees may be in the plan and you can find out are they charging you uh additional two percent a year or three percent a year or one and a half percent a year for just breathing in that 403b that's where the real pain comes so often with a 403b plan is yeah they may offer fidelity investment choices they may offer vanguard choices but then behind the curtain are massive fees that are giant ripoff fees being charged 
by the insurance company that administers the 403B, and that's what you got to find out. If you do find out that you have these massive hidden curtain fees in the plan, what you do is you contribute to the 403B only to the point that you pick up the hospital match. And then beyond the match, you do your own Roth IRA. Well, you're already at Vanguard with Vanguard would be the great way to handle it. And I want to thank you so much for listening. And I feel bad when I say something like talking about how the insurance companies cheat people with these 403Bs and all that, because it's such a negative way to end the podcast. And it's unfortunate that people who work in a hospital saving people's lives or people who work in a classroom educating our children that Congress and its infinite wisdom chose to give people with those kind of employers vastly inferior retirement plans to people who work for traditional for-profit employers where you have 401ks that generally will have costs one-tenth or less what the embedded costs are in a 403b. The real issue here is that Congress did the wrong thing. And Congress needs to do the right thing because people who work for nonprofits, who work in hospitals, who work as educators, should be treated at least as well as those of us who work for for for-profit enterprises. So sorry about the negative energy I just spewed out, but you got to know because what you don't know can really hurt your wallet down the road. And thanks for tuning in to our podcast. Krista hates it when I say tune in. Why do you hate that so much? I I just think it's funny because that's not a radio show. Well, you know, I did radio (laughs) starting in 1987. I still do radio in morning and evening drive. I do these Clark Minutes that run. And old habits die hard. It's okay. The whole idea is to serve you wherever you want to be reached. And that's what we do with Team Clark. Newsletters, websites, social media, podcasts, radio, and one-on-one free advice from the Team Clark Consumer Action Center. However you want to be served, we're here to do it.